I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Revelation chapters 1 through 3. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So we see in this book, as we begin, that John, the Apostle John, gets a revelation from God. Revelation was written by John on Patmos, the result of a vision around 95 AD, it's believed. It is indeed the last book written, according to the tradition of the early church writer Eusebius. John was on the island as a result of being exiled there by the Roman emperor. All we know about it from the scripture is found in verse 9 when John says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. There wasn't much to do on the island except commune with God. It's in this setting that John receives the words of the book of Revelation. Let's go to chapter 1 now, the introduction to the rest of the prophecies to be found in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Well, John introduces in verses 1 through 3 the purpose for writing down this prophecy. He then names his initial audience being the seven churches in Asia. That was a Roman province embracing the greater part of Western Asia Minor. Today, these locations are found in modern-day Turkey. Patmos, the island from which John is writing, is off the coast. The order of the churches is always listed the same. Notice the map that I've provided in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, and you'll see that they are always listed clockwise from the nearest one to Patmos, which was Ephesus, by the way. goes around and back down toward Patmos. The testimony that John is recording is that of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, we see that. John records what he saw from the angel, verse 2. Now, here's a rephrase of verse 3 that captures the essence of the Greek usage of the three present active participles used in that verse. So let me read it just as it appears in Greek, as best I can translate it into English. Blessed are the ones reading and the ones hearing the words of this prophecy and the ones guarding the same having been written, for the time is near. So John tells us, as believers, how we are to regard the book of Revelation. Read it, hear it, and guard its words. Verse 5 gives us the facts about Jesus Christ that John wants to convey. First of all, Jesus is the faithful witness. The Greek word pistos means faithful, trustworthy, or reliable. Then we see in verse 5 that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then in 1 Corinthians 15.23, here's what Paul says, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Paul describes Jesus in Romans 8.29 with these words, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus' resurrection from the dead establishes the precedent for all believers to follow. Now, this concept, while used by Paul in his epistles, originates actually from Psalm 89. Verse 27 of Psalm 89 says this, Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And then we actually see in verse 5 that Jesus is ruler over the kings of the earth, which is obviously taken from the psalm that we just read, Psalm 89, 27. Then we also see in verse 5 here of Revelation 1 that Jesus loved us, and also that Jesus washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is, of course, our spiritual rebirth. Now, let's not miss the declaration in verse 6 of the position before God of all believers. It says in verse 6 that God has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Hey, we're priests. But we also see this doctrine of the priesthood of believers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here's what that verse says. But you, believers, are a chosen generation of royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Well, this being the case, those in Revelation 20, verse 6, 
where it says, who shall reign with him a thousand years, certainly must be a reference to all believers. Verse 7 is often misunderstood when it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. Now that, verse 7, that's not the rapture of 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18 and also 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one to 58 That's the second coming found in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Yes, I'm aware that believers meet the Lord in the clouds in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, but all the criteria found in the verse are not met until the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, if you want to know more about that, then skip ahead and look at my notes on Revelation chapter 6 for additional clarifications. Now, it's obvious that Jesus Christ himself is giving John this prophecy from the description seen here in verses 11 through 18. Notice the similarity here in these verses uh, with those of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Let me read Daniel 7, 9, and 10 to you. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So we see a three-point outline of the prophecy in verse 19. It says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. In addition to what John has seen in verses 1 through 18, he's told to write about the things which are. This is a reference to the spiritual situation in those seven churches listed in Asia Minor. Those were back in John's day. We'll see those situations in chapters 2 and 3. The future, being the things which will take place after this, well, the future begins in Revelation chapter 4 and continues on to the end of the book. The seven stars and seven lampstands are identified in verse 20 when it says, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. References will be made to these identifiers in chapters 2 and 3. The Greek word for angel there is angelos. It's also frequently translated messenger. Now let's do an introduction to chapters 2 and 3 before we actually read 2 and 3. There's no prophecy in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. John's vision contains instructions for these seven churches in Asia Minor. These were real churches in that day. Some have taken these seven churches to be church-age prophecy with each of the seven churches mentioned representing a period of time beginning in the first century all the way down to our current day. In this extra-scriptural systematic assignment of Asia Minor churches to periods of church history, we are considered to be living in the Laodicean church age, now in the 21st century. Now, here's the problem, though. There's nothing in this passage or any other to suggest that these church exhortations are to be taken as anything more than exhortations to those actual seven churches in Asia Minor. So I'm convinced that our lesson here is to look at the attributes of these churches and, and identify the ones that God does and does not honor and to take heed of those. Now remember, these are churches, local assemblies being referenced here. I don't see any basis whatsoever to identify these two chapters as an analogous message outlining the characteristics of seven ages of church history. So let's begin with the church at Ephesus, which is in chapter 2, first seven verses. Verse 1, 
To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven churches in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." Paul had previously visited there on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 to 21, and then he went back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, recorded in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, and chapter 20, verse 31, that's when he remained there for two years, preaching in the synagogue, according to Acts 19, verses 8 and 10, in the school of Tyrannus, uh, according to Acts 19, 9, and then in private houses in Acts 20, 20. Diana's temple was there, making it a pagan religious center for all of Asia. The Ephesians are commended for their patience, perseverance, and intolerance for false teachers. Their problem is having left their first love. It would appear that they had lost sight of their purpose and love for Christ and were merely going through the actions, proper actions, but with improper motivation. The removal of a lampstand in these two chapters is symbolic of a church becoming dead. It has no reference whatever to the salvation of individual believers. Now, here's John's admonition to them in verse 5. He says, Remember what the old days were like and return to the old days. The Greek word for repent there in verse 5 is metanaeo. It means to change one's mind or attitude. The Ephesians needed an attitude adjustment, obviously, from this passage. Several theories have been offered regarding who the Nicolaitans were. Many scholars believe that they were a Gnostic group originally founded by a man named Nicholas. But we really have no direct evidence to validate that. It is assumed that they were a sect who preached false doctrine. Whoever they are, let's stay clear of them. Verse 7 is interesting. Let's define to whom it refers to when it says, Him who overcomes. John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John uses this phrase to describe believers. The tree of life is a reference, first of all, to the one that was located in the Garden of Eden, recorded in Genesis 2.9. After Adam's sin, God drove them out of the Garden of Eden because, according to Genesis 3.22, it says, "...lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever." The fruit of that tree of life was apparently the means whereby God had granted them eternal life. We see in Revelation 22 that after the creation of the earth, the new earth, there will once again exist the tree of life. Revelation 22, 2 says that it will exist there for the healing of the nations. Therefore, access to the tree of life guarantees eternal life. Then we come to the church at Smyrna in verses 8 through 11, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. 
I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, Smyrna was a modern city with paved roads along with Roman and pagan temples. It was a center for medicine and science. The church there was probably founded while Paul was in and around Ephesus for approximately two years, around 57 A.D. That's why he was on his third missionary journey, recorded in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. Smyrna was close to Ephesus. There's no direct mention of them in Paul's third missionary journey, but he would have passed through on his way north. There are only two churches in this list of seven about which nothing critical is said, and this is the first one. Commendations for their works and suffering can be inferred here in verse 9. Apparently there were people in Smyrna presenting themselves as Jewish converts to Christianity, but were doing so falsely, and no additional information is available about that. In verse 10, the devil, the Greek word diabolos, means slanderer. But when used with the definite article as it is here, usually means Satan himself. The tribulation ten days is a mystery. It may be a figure of speech. We see that death as a martyr brings a crown of life. We see in this passage that tough times are ahead for these people, but they are commended for their faithfulness. Overcomers are defined by John as believers in his first epistle. The second death is described by John in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, when he says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Then we come to the church at Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate." Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Well, Pergamus was about 15 miles inland and hosted three temples dedicated to Roman emperors where they worshipped them as gods one to Augustus Caesar. Pergamus was a religious center for that region. The imperial cult was a test of loyalty to Rome. Jews had integrated into Roman society there. Well, these folks had been faithful to the name of Christ, but that's about it on the good side. Satan's seat might be a reference to the three temples built to the Roman emperors located in that city. Despite being a religious center, they remained firm for Christ and became marked as not loyal to Rome. An unknown martyr named Antipas was slain there. 
Verse 14 resurrects some Old Testament memories. You'll recall that Balaam devised a plan whereby the daughters of the Moabites would seduce the Israelite men and lead them to sacrifice to their god Baal Peor in Numbers chapter 25. You may also want to take a look at 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 and Jude verse 11, which also refers back to Numbers chapter 25. If you want to know more about what took place with regard to Balaam and Balak, then read the notes and passages, Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 25. It would appear that there were those in the church there who tempted the believers with sinful practices in the same fashion as did Balaam. The Nicolaitans, again, get dishonorable mention here as they did regarding Ephesus. There seemed to be a good bit of deviant doctrine inside the church, and they must repent of that. In verse 16, the word repent, metanaeo, means to change one's mind or attitude. In verse 17, the manna is a reference to the Old Testament wilderness wandering, Exodus chapter 16. The white stone, don't know, it's a mystery. Then we come to the church at Thyatira in verses 18 to 29 of chapter 2. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works." Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depth of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira was a city of craftsmen and merchants. Lydia, who was a convert of Paul in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15, she was a seller of purple fabric there. We're told from secular sources that many trade guilds operated in Thyatira. The city hosted a major cult of Apollo, son of Zeus. That was the deity associated with prophecy in the sun. These folks are commended in verse 19 for their works, love, service, faith, and their patience. However, they had a problem, big problem. Jezebel may not have been her actual name. It could have been the tag given her by Christ in this passage because of her dastardly deeds. My rule of thumb has always been this. Being called Jezebel is never a compliment. She had obviously corrupted this church with false teaching, accompanied, apparently, with the teaching of cultic immorality, which is what we derive from verses 21 to 24. In addition to the words of this prophecy, that notion is based upon the showdown between Elijah, Jezebel, and her band of heathen prophets of Baal. 
It's a great read, by the way, in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19 when you have time. This church gets a one-sentence commendation in verse 19, but it's all downhill from there. If they don't repent, severe judgment is on the way. There's a reference to ruling in verse 26. Apparently, saints will rule over the nations with Christ. Faithfulness here is rewarded with responsibility during the millennium over Gentile nations. We don't have any additional details here regarding the morning star of verse 28. That brings us to chapter 3, which begins with the church at Sardis. Verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, here's what we know about Sardis from history. It was a very old city, well fortified on top of a mountain. It had been conquered by the Persians in the 6th century B.C. and Greeks in the 3rd century B.C. This modern city maintained a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. Sardis also had a well-established Jewish population. Of all the seven churches, this one receives the most criticism. Have you ever been to a church and said, This church is dead? Well, that's the description of Sardis. The message to this congregation is, Wake up! There were a few in the church who were still perky, as we see in verse 4. So let the revival form around those people. Repent, again, metanoeo, means to change one's mind or attitude. Incidentally, verse 5 has been abused by those who teach that salvation is temporary, only effective as long as one is actively serving God. They abuse this verse with very poor deductive reasoning in assuming that the inverse is true that if one does not overcome, his name will be blotted out of the book of life. Ironically, verse 5 actually provides a very strong case for the security of the believer and is not intended as a threat at all. The people referenced there, well, they overcame to salvation and thus shall be clothed in white raiment and thus are eternally secure. That's the exact context in which John uses the term in 1 John chapter 5, Verses 4 and 5, again, we said it earlier, but let's read it again. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John uses this phrase to describe believers. Then we come to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works, see, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, 
and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Well, Philadelphia was located about 90 miles inland on the Hermas River, a river that connected to the Mediterranean. It was often referred to as Little Athens because of the magnificent buildings and pagan temples located there in that city. The city had a significant population of Jews who maintained a synagogue there. Only this church and Smyrna have no indictments against them. Apparently they were being attacked by those impostors mentioned in verse 9. The Philadelphians are told, just hang on, your day's coming. There's an interesting reference in verse 7 regarding the opening and closing. Jesus is the holy and true one there. Here's a quote from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. I quote, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. During Hezekiah's reign, Shebna was replaced by Eliakim because Shebna's interests were not loyal to the security of Jerusalem against the Assyrians. Shebna was not holy and true. Though spiritually beaten down, the folks in Philadelphia remained faithful and true. According to John's definition of 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, which we've read twice already, overcomers are believers. All the details regarding the New Jerusalem are to be found in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Then finally, we have the church at Laodicea. It's in chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. We begin with reading with verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Well, the Laodiceans, there's not a single positive comment about these folks, these folks in Laodicea. There's kind of an interesting play on words concerning these Laodiceans. They, they pipe their water through enclosed conduits for several miles to the city. As a result, their water was lukewarm. These people understood lukewarm. Thus, their works are compared to lukewarm water. Not that good, not that bad, just, just lukewarm. Is God happy with a lukewarm church? Well, obviously not, according to verse 16. However, 
They thought they were okay according to verse 17, but not so according to verse 18. An interesting linkage is made in that verse regarding the trade resources of the city of Laodicea. It was a banking center whose banks, even Cicero, recommended for exchanging money. It manufactured clothing and wool carpets made from the glossy black wool of sheep raised locally. It also had a medical school that produced a popular eye ointment made from a pulverized rock that was found in that area. Now look at verse 18 in that context. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. That's pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? Now the amen of verse 14 is a transliteration of the Greek meaning for trustworthy. We also see the eternal presence of Jesus emphasized, just as it was by John in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. Notice the reference to chastisement in verse 19. Why? Well, because he loves them. That's why chastisement takes place. That would indicate that these neither cold nor hot folks were believers. God chastens believers, according to Hebrews twelve six through 8 Listen to it. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. That phrase, as many as I love, well, that establishes that these are lukewarm believers being addressed here and encouraged to repent. Metanoeo means to change one's mind or attitude. An appeal is made in verse 20 for the local assembly to invite Christ back in. Works done in a church by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit are not lukewarm, they're hot. Let's look closely at Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, some use this verse as a call to personal salvation. For personal salvation, the knocking on the door metaphor just makes a nice presentation when presenting the gospel message. This verse, though technically directed to individual Laodiceans to once again establish fellowship with Christ, well, it does make a rather nice salvation invitation. However, that does do a bit of injustice to the context here. According to John's definition of 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, which we've read a couple times today, overcomers in verse 21 are believers. After the rapture of the church indicated in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Of course, we'll be ruling with Jesus Christ. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton. 